Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this week's podcast of the Insider Outsider Podcast. I'm excited to have our guest this week, Annika Komen. Annika has an amazing background of years and years of this path that she's been following a truth in her about mindfulness. And in this COVID-19 times, it's a great time to talk about mindfulness, maybe to get some tips and some secrets around how can we all use this in this turbulent time period that we're in. Annika's got a background in liberal arts, also in spirituality and medicine from Bastyr and organizational development, as well as been a mindfulness trainer at Nike and other places, including Intel for quite a long time. And you have your own firm now, Awake at Work Institute. So thanks for coming, Monica. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here. So tell me about what got you into mindfulness? You know, when did that start? Usually there's an interesting story there about such a strong thread in your life, I imagine. How long ago did that start? You know, when you ask that question, the first images I come back to are being a child Mm. and being out in nature. I grew up in Central Oregon, so we had, had some property. And I remember just spending kind of hours kind of enthralled in the moment like I'm thinking of this pond that had cattails and pollywogs and just being mesmerized and so fully in the moment. I think about that also as a young little girl with art and just this ability to stay really connected, present, in joy with what was around me, even in the midst of some really, really challenging early life experiences. So when you first say that, I think, well, when did it begin? And I think one of the points that I would want to make is that this capacity to be present, to pay attention, to be with ourselves and what's arising within us, around us, between us, is really a natural capacity. And oftentimes it gets lost or shut down in the culture we live in, in trauma, in distraction. So when I think about where the beginnings were, it really, I have an awareness of it being on board in the beginning. And then I also have an awareness of how far I moved away from that place. When I think about my early 20s, really getting caught up in career and achievement and losing some of that contact. And I remember a moment and I think, I think it was at that time I was working at, at Intel. I was probably 26. I'd gotten married, bought a home, had the dogs and the cars and <laughs> vacation and the income, you know, the, the American dream. Mm-hmm. What I was told and conditioned was 
you know, what was going to bring me fulfillment and happiness. And I remember waking up one morning and going, all of this is here and I'm not here. Where am I in this? And pretty shortly, I started to take that life apart. Mm-hmm. My marriage, the companies sold those and kind of went into, at a pretty young age, you know, this inquiry of like, there's got to be more. There's something about my being, my soul that was in that question. And eventually that led me to the Leadership Institute of Seattle. And they didn't necessarily call it mindfulness. They called it more, you know, awareness and presence. But that was my first introduction to something that I think is natural and innate in us, but also needs to be kind of remembered and retrained and cultivated. And in that work, we did a lot of work to kind of bring ourselves back. Mm-hmm. And one of their focuses was as organizational change agents, systems thinkers, we're only as potent and effective as much as we've done our inner work, as much as we're a clear or a more present instrument. So the more formal aspects of that came during that time. That's fascinating. I mean, you've already given us a priceless question or a way to turn this. You said, all this is here, but I'm not here. And I think a question that we all have to ask ourselves is, look at everything that's here and how much am I here? How much am I really here in this life, in the moment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I imagine the present time is your favorite time. <laughs> right now, yes. <laughs> being, being, being a mindfulness-focused person. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of the time, yeah. I mean, I've even, in this time of COVID and this time of change and uncertainty, when you say, you know, how much of myself is present, you know, and what parts have we maybe hidden or suppressed to be able to function, to be able to show up, to be able to belong One of the things that when you say, you know, this is the present moment, your favorite moment, yes, at a deep level. And, you know, one of the things that I become present to in this time is a part of me that I often suppress, which is my anger. Mm -hmm. And as it's come up in this time and I've just contained it, which for me means like as much as I can stay present with the sensations in my belly feel the movement. We could call it anger. We could call it energy. We could call it power. We could call it life force. But to stay present with it mm-hmm. has been so uncomfortable. Like It would be the last thing that I'd want to stay present with in the moment. Mm. And yet what I notice the day after, I've really kind of ridden, we might call it riding the dragon. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wake up the next day and I feel more solid more sovereign, more clear, and more access to power. So one of the gifts of mindfulness, one of the gifts of being able to stay present with whatever's arising, and in some ways not grasping for what we would prefer or denying what we would rather not be here, but as we can, as much as we can, say yes, Mm -hmm. and have a welcoming experience, even if it's really uncomfortable. And John Kabat-Zinn, who's in some ways, you know, the grandfather of mindfulness in this culture, wrote a book called Full Catastrophe Living. And one of the things he said is if mindfulness doesn't help us in the most challenging, in the most traumatic, in the most uncertain times, you know, what good is it? So this practice is is so Mm -hmm. relevant Mm -hmm. to not only how we are navigating 
the moments and our relationship with ourselves and others in this time, but how do we work with what is a collective trauma right now that's impacting all of us and will impact us to come so this practice can help us with that? Yeah, I think it sounds like one of the crux moves is to catch myself not being present and come back home, come back to myself with certain sensations. I also have a lifelong history of avoidance of anger and getting comfortable with my own anger so I can relate. I, when I was going through a divorce, I had to literally snowshoe every day this trail for a couple of miles just to physically exert, channel some of that energy. I, I remember that. And so if you know my men's group has sat on me on a couch at times to get me to get <laughs> pissed and connect to my own anger. I, what do you do, particularly in these COVID times, what do you do, what do you suggest to me, or what do you suggest to others about how to connect to yourself, how to stay connected or how to reconnect when you're finding yourself disconnected? What helps? I think one of the most important thing is often in a time where our nervous systems are really elevated and jacked up, where our neuroception, you know, detection, threat detection system that lives below conscious awareness is pretty much active 24-7. Am I safe? Is there a threat? Do I belong? Am I going to be okay? Sometimes we have to remember that, you know, being connected to ourselves needs to happen by design, not default, especially when we have a really active nervous system in these times. So, you know, being intentional. How do I want to wake up in the morning before I grab my phone or jump out of bed or whatever the pattern might be? Can I just lay in the bed and receive some breath, feel my body, you know, take in life through my five senses? And I can I settle a little bit deeper into my body, into my heart and and receive intention for the day. How do I want to show up? What do I need today? What would be nourishing? Who needs my support? To set kind of your course first thing in the morning or as soon as you can catch yourself sets up a trajectory for your day of connection and a presence. And throughout the day, if you feel like, oh, wow, I am spinning out in this or I feel numb or I feel confused about even what I need or want to do next, you can tether back to that intention, that sense of presence. Uh That's one thing. I often call them rituals. Like rituals help us create rhythm and a route and meaning. What are the rituals of connection with yourself and others that you want to be intentional about in this time? I think the other thing is a lot of times we think of mindfulness or meditation or presence as this kind of like something that we have to strive for rather than a moment that we pause take a breath and notice what's here for us and then continue. So a day with more pauses is a day with more presence. Uh-huh. Whether you set a timer or whether you're just, you know, noticing when you seem to drift. I think one of the most important things to come through this time with coherence and maybe come through this with more of who we are rather than less is to stay with ourselves. Uh-huh. This, the moment we start to move away, we start to move away from our, our experience and and especially the challenging emotions, those are all just going to accumulate. And so the more that we can kind of metabolize those in a gentle way, sometimes in a fierce way, like my relationship with anger right now has been somewhat fierce. As it comes, I notice all the things that I would rather do rather than feel the sensation. But 
we could again it, it, even naming it anger it feels like it's a a resource of power and clarity that's going to serve me as i metabolize it yeah fascinating and one thing i love that you said earlier is that being with yourself is a natural state. It's like, it's not something that we have to learn that we've not naturally have some, we have some connection to it, all of us, and it's rediscovering that connection and it's pushing away, whether it's the social media or the overscheduling of doing this, or, you know, I know some people from some of our clients that just said, you know, gosh, my natural response to this stress in these times is to just sit down and work harder. And they lock themselves out from that time of pausing and being, getting out of the doing mode into the being mode. And it's like, and I know myself, I was like, I knew for a couple of days getting out and doing a hike would really help me. And it was like three days before I finally said, okay, I'm doing it. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we have to do what we need to do to give ourselves that connection. Absolutely. I think when so much feels outside of our control, so much is uncertain. The doing and the over-functioning is an attempt, you know, to get control of something that we don't have control over. And to bring compassion even to that is a practice, you know, like, mm. wow, mm-hmm. I really feel out of control. Or, oh, wow, I'm really overworking because that at least feels certain <laughs> or empowering. And, and there is, you know, a lot to be met sometimes when we take the foot off the gas and come back to ourselves, whatever we left ourselves for, whether it was a grief or an anger or whatever it might be, is going to be waiting there. We get to come back to it. Nice. Yes. It's a pile. Yeah, I, I think a pile of stuff, but also resources, as you said. And I'm just thinking right now about the impact of key relationships in our life and partnerships. And I'm imagining that the way I interact with other people can either reinforce my lack of being with myself and really slowing down and pausing, or it can actually become a rich source of we're okay with silence sometimes together. We actually breathe. Sometimes people breathe together, slow down, and just allow ourselves to see what arises in the moment as opposed to filling the space. And uh, I imagine that's part of your, I know you've taught for years, mindfulness to leaders and How do you go about doing that? How do you give people on-ramps into this avenue? And what do you see as mindfulness? Mm. Yeah. You're practicing the silence now. I like that moment of silence. Yeah, pause. When you were were saying breathe together, silence, I could just feel the deep nourishment in that. Almost brings tears. Like I can feel more of myself just when you named and invoked that state. Yeah. And then when you did it back, I felt the same thing. I was like, oh, she's stopping us. Like, that's sweet. I love that. It has me stop. Yeah. Mindfulness. Well, you know, when I was looking at the eight leadership skills that you all work with, with leaders, and was looking at a definition of courage that you had put forward about to stand in and be with one's core. And I was thinking, that's really a big aspect of mindfulness. How do we, a lot of times we're moving outside of ourselves or on the surface of ourselves. So how do we pause and make this return to our core that's kind of residing in the background, always there, always present, always watching. And it's such a deep nourishment. And when we're residing more and more in our core, where we're attuned 
to what's happening within us, sensations, feelings, thoughts, awareness. When we're in that state of attunement, we're naturally attuned to others. We become more available. We can sense where somebody else is at and what might be nourishing or what might help them be at their best. Sounds like a shift from quantity of stuff into quality of connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when our nervous systems are dysregulated, we tend to go up into the head, up into the mind, and our connections tend to be more about sharing what we've been doing, sharing things in the news, sharing at that level where there's nothing wrong with that. And there is a deeper nourishment available. And I really don't so much believe that it's only about being self-regulated, that through our presence, we can help regulate each other's nervous system. So even in that moment when you said, you know, stillness, silence, breathing, I could feel the co-regulation that was happening between us. And then you experienced it. And then that that kind of exchange. And that exchange can happen if you're not with other people, with your with nature. Yeah. Having that sort of attunement with this resource that we have. Yeah, and I noticed as I listen to you, I'm I'm noticing my breath and I don't normally do that consciously. And that was probably part of so it's a good example of what you mean by co-regulation. It's like impacting each other to soothe the nervous system and be present. Right. And there is a inextricable, I don't know if that's the word, there is a truth to our interconnection with each other. And all the uncertainty, that will always be true. Now, do we have the courage or the vulnerability or the presence to actually drop in? Because it is You know, I don't know if you're noticing it, but there's like a sweetness, a tenderness, a more vulnerability when we stop in that place. And we can probably access more of our humanity, less of the rigidity of the mind and the activity of the mind. Yeah, and I find when when I do this, slow down and be more available, it's nourishing for me. It's usually nourishing for the other person or people. And it's like kind of like a relief. It's like reclaiming of that what you said is a natural self-connection and it's like we're all in many ways hungry for it however much we buy into the culture in our culture we talk about white male culture in the u.s and around the world it's a lot of a doingness culture being in our head reinforced for being rugged individualists rather than really connecting and being vulnerable you know where we talk about re you mentioned courage being with our core and also another part of it is the vulnerability is the purest form of courage Brene Brown says so that when I'm with my core I'm showing what's real regardless of whether I think others will like it or not and I'm like that's a gift it is a gift and I'm circling back to the word hunger and all the things that we use to feel that hunger for ourselves, the missing of ourselves, our own presence and the depth of connection, the joy of connection, the play of connection with one another. And that's here for us now. That has not gone away. It may have changed. In fact, when you were saying that you were noticing your breathing the other night, I was Marco Poloing with one of my friends in Santa Fe. And I just kept breathing, like in a kind of like, 
a more pronounced way. And I said, I don't know if I'm breathing because I need it or you need it, need it or we need it. And then she messaged back and was like, I just started breathing with you as I watched the video and came back to myself. So even as we're connecting in some new ways, we can still practice this presence and attunement and, and regulation and, and find nourishment. So I'm thinking about leaders who are listening to this and they're living so much in a virtual world right now, how important it is to both receive and offer the possibility of just that slowing down with each other. And even in their staff meetings, let's just pause for a moment and get present for a moment. Sometimes people share a word or a phrase, what's up for them, or they get a few minutes to just say, what's real? What's present for you right now in this moment? A few minutes of that, I would imagine, would help the productivity of the other tasks just flow. People would feel more connected. Maybe it would get a deeper meeting. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it doesn't take that long to invite more awareness and presence and and I think about coherence. So when, if we come into a meeting and we've got all sorts of things going on, but there's no space to show up with it or to even just name it before we go to the next thing, we're out of coherence. Anytime we move away from what's showing up in the moment, we move out of coherence. And I think about another one of your, your teachings around integrating head and heart. I would say integrating head, heart, and gut and the body. Mm-hmm. But as soon as we move away, we move out of that alignment. And since the brain is, you know, electromagnetic and the heart, our emotions are, you know, sending out signals, we can just take ourselves out of coherence. And then we're not, we don't have access to insight or creativity or connection or focus. So leaders that can create a space for themselves and others you know, at Intel, I, I don't know if I totally am down with this phrase, but they used to say we go slow to go fast. You know, we slow down to be more potent and impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many of the leaders reported, and we did measurement, whether it was at the Gates Foundation or Eli Lilly or Intel, kind of measured the impact of the nine-week course, Awake at Work. And one of the the key benefits was leaders feeling like they had more time, not less, you know, deeper focus, less reactivity, more proactive, more depth of connection with their colleagues. And that was consistent across the board, sometimes an 80% increase in those things. It wasn't because all of a sudden they were meditating for hours You know, they were learning these practices and using them in those micro moments. I was thinking today about the work you do, the work we do. You know, leadership happens in the moment. We often think about it in this, you know, it, it has levels to it. But really, are we showing up with courage in the moment? Are we showing up with presence? Are we showing up with vulnerability? Those choices can only be made in the moment. And that's why I see as mindfulness as the underlying foundation for all of those eight critical leadership skills that you teach. If we're not present, we're not going to be able to reach for that and have, you know, the the capacity to risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the leadership happens in the moment and connection happens in the moment. And of course of ourselves, but the important people in our life and the important people at work. And so that sounds like a, a it's sort of like a fountain of of fresh water 
that we can slow down and tap into anytime and make the moment more rich, make the connections and all of that more meaningful. And you have a, don't you have a program on Sounds True or somewhere that people can access and use as a guide? Tell me a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. The nine week, you know, what, what we started with at Intel, and it's so interesting because we talk about presence and one of the things that being present helps us do, especially in this time, is we, it's not only presence with a focus on ourselves or others, but on the big picture, like being able to see clearly what's happening in the world. What are the trends? Where are things moving? What are the responses that are necessary? And so for leaders, that's a really important thing. That's part of what mindfulness gives us is a capacity to be attuned to the bigger themes, the bigger picture of our organizations. And I remember after, you know, working at Intel, this might be kind of like, it seems like I might be going in a you know big circle here, but we'll, we'll circle back to it. I remember working at Intel when I was, you know, 25 or 26 years old. I worked in the Intel architecture labs that did a lot of innovation and enabling technologies. I was probably one of the only women and very young and doing marketing in that. And I remember sitting in the conference rooms and being aware of what was going on around me and thinking, really, this is how business gets done? I didn't hear people listening to each other. (laughs) I didn't hear people, you know, like working with difference. Like it was really shocking to me. Like there was some innate part of me that knew there was a different way, but was kind of in shock of what I saw. And I, and I knew there was a different way. And I don't know how many years later, 15 years later, full circle going and learning and doing a lot of healing and experimentation. I was like, it's time to take this practice of mindfulness back into Intel. Mm-hmm. And I had a colleague there and I said, let's see if we can get some traction on this. And I remember, you know, talked to different health groups and HR groups and wasn't really able to get any traction and called me one day and said, I'm really disappointed, but it doesn't seem like we have a sponsor. And this was a moment of mindfulness for me. Like I could have gone into a kind of a pattern, which is often true for me of like, oh, that's okay. (laughs) But instead I dropped in Uh and I said, wow, hearing that I feel really disappointed. I notice I feel really sad. And then he said, I feel that way too. And then we said, what else could be possible? And I said, well, give me a conference room. I'll come at noon. I'll volunteer. We'll just start. And then that beginning moved into, you know, doing a a pilot program of this nine-week program. And it was called Awaken Intel. And, you know, it grew to be available to all 100,000 employees and a group of probably 15 or 20 internal facilitators. And then I went on and took that work into Wake at Work to different companies. And then Sounds True asked to publish it. So the the nine-week program is available there. We also recorded 52, and I can make some of those practices available if there's a way Mm -hmm. to make some of them available for you. But we recorded 52 micro practices that are two to four minute practices. And I know many leaders, many people in the corporate realm have just loved those because, you know, when they need something, you know, it's available. And there's many other applications out there that offer the same thing. What are a couple of those micro minute or two things look like? Yeah. 
One might be, there's a whole section in in the nine-week program. One of the modules is all around vulnerability mm-hmm. and creativity. So there's a, micro medi- a whole set of micro practices around the practice of vulnerability. There are practices around mindful listening and attunement. There's practices around just coming back to our senses. Like the senses are a doorway to presence. There's really no way that we can avoid being present when, when we're, you know, what am I seeing? What am I smelling? What am I touching? And bringing it in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So that's that sounds true. And is it also called Awake at Work? Or is that Awake at Work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then your website is Awake at Work, I believe, Institute. too. Institute. So that's also mm-hmm. out there. I'm excited about your joining our firm at WMFDP as a starting to look at facilitating, you know, and you've been on your own journey working as a white woman, looking at race and looking at gender and looking at all different layers. And I know that you've been really active in your own journey and teaching around this and other avenues and stuff. So I'm, you mentioned before we started recording, I think that that diversity partnerships is sort of like the culmination of this journey for you around mindfulness that you've been able to really apply it in many ways, or is it, it, it that it requires? I am. I think when we grow diversity partnerships, we also grow mindfulness, or we need to. Tell me about that in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, when you said that, I could just feel my heart starting to like give me affirmation. Like, mm-hmm. yes, working with you, working with the, the firm, being on this track, all of that is an affirmative, really strong yes for me. And so... Here's another example of just presence of of being able to figure out what's true and not true. What's me and not me. That's such an important skill. I don't know if I would have been able to go as far and as deep on my own anti-racism, diversity, equity, inclusion journey without mindfulness on board, partly because discomfort is so much a part of this learning and moving out of our comfort mm-hmm, zone mm-hmm. and learning how to not react from that place, not to shut down, not to act out, but to be able to kind of, in some ways, contain and learn from the discomfort. And that's a practice of mindfulness and emotional intelligence that's really important. The other thing that I think happens, especially for white folks, male gendered folks, is that it's like installing a whole new program in the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. It's like, a whole new consciousness that needs to come in. Otherwise, we're performing, we're inconsistent. But if we want to be in this journey for the long haul and have impact and resilience and sustainability, there's a whole process of kind of updating our programming and our our conditioning to have a whole new perspective. And that can be messy, that can be disorienting, that can be confusing, that can be liberating, (laughs) it can be all sorts of things. And it does take a quality of mindfulness and attention and awareness, Mm -hmm. friendliness towards that learning process for ourselves and others to really take root. So I see it as, I don't know how you would do real change without this on board as a leader, as an organization. And I think of a you know, a typical, in my experience, 25 years of working with white men around diversity issues and their 
they're working with a woman of color or a person, a white woman, perhaps. And the first question they might ask is, well, what are the three things you want me to do differently to create inclusion? And that's totally from that old part of the brain that's like been inoculated to be on a treadmill, go as fast as possible, get as much done as possible, sort of get really clear, uncertain, you know, take out the uncertainty. And a question, if if I go into that new operating system you're talking about in a, in a being sense, I might ask, well, what's it like to be you here in this organization? And I, if I don't create that space to be mindful or to get out of the cultural box, I don't even know I have, I don't even know to ask that question as a possibility. And I don't get the connection that it creates when I do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love what you're saying. It's about a lot of this work is about getting re-related and asking those questions. What's it like to be you? What do you want and need? Those questions are connecting. And there is that often in the workshops that I'm in with people, they do want just a kind of script or an action plan. But what I know is as we do this work in a, in a depth way, the next step, the next aligned interaction, intervention, whatever it might be, it arises through relationship, arises through that sort of communication and connection. And as you said, I mean, leading and connecting really happen in the moment. And it's like, how do I ask questions or sit in a being place instead of a doing place? And you gave an example earlier in our talk about talking to the person that uh, at Intel, and you said, when I hear you say that I feel sad, that's a statement about how you were impacted by somebody in the moment. I think that's another on-ramp to getting present is to notice how you're impacted by each other and to speak that in a way that's mm-hmm. just not about guessing anybody's intent, but just speaking to impact and being present together. That's a another way, a gift, which is you know, obviously important in personal relationships too, outside of work. So I imagine the leaders that have become mindful at work at Intel, other places, they probably got some good feedback from home that, hey, this is really helpful here too. Yeah, that was a huge part of it everywhere this is taught, their relationship with their children, their spouse. And there's some really challenging things too. Like I remember a manager at at Intel and gone through the nine-week program, had been at Intel maybe 25 years, long-term marriage. And he woke up and he said, none of this is me. I've been on such a treadmill, like, where am I in my marriage? Where am I in my work? Where am I with myself? So the longer that we've moved away from the core of who we are, from the truth of who we are, and stayed more fluid in the moment with our experience, there's a journey back. And that's another reason why to stay stay with ourselves so we can attend to what needs to be attended to instead of having a whole backlog the other really powerful thing for, for everyone and for leaders, and, and it brings me back again, I'm, I'm thinking about these stories. I think I might have been in my, maybe my early 30s and had graduated from Leos and was working on a merger and acquisition with a couple companies in Seattle. And it was a Midwest company that was going to be acquiring a Seattle company. And I was a part of the executive leadership integration team and employee communications and as a consultant. And I remember being in a particular meeting 
with the CEO of the company are all men. And I think mainly all ex-military men. So it was a CEO and a couple of vice presidents and myself. And the CEO was telling us and telling his vice presidents that nothing was going to change, that he'd been assured that this was kind of a hands-off acquisition, business as usual, nothing was going to change. And he was going on and on with that. And and the two vice presidents were nodding their head in agreement. And I was sitting there in the moment. My whole body was just kind of like high alert. And I could feel my gut. The more this kind of narrative went on, my stomach was clenching just in a big nod. And what I knew, and this is relevant to DEI work, what I knew is if I went into my head, into my intellect, and tried to convince or challenge, I inherently knew that probably wouldn't go well to get into that level of a back and forth conversation. So what I started with when I spoke was like, I'm noticing in the moment that my gut is in a knot. And I notice that I'm not believing that this is really going to be true. I don't have a sense that this is how things are actually going to go down. And so I used my in the moment, more vulnerable experience. And then one of the vice presidents, like eyes were wide open and it's like, I have that knot too. (laughs) All of us had that knot, even the person speaking. Uh And that changed everything in that moment about what we started to reckon with, what was communicated to employees. And again, it was an attempt to try and control uncertainty and the unknown, I believe, that the CEO was speaking from. So it takes us back to this time again. You know, how can we come closer to the inarguable that are here and see that they're a source? I mean, they have intelligence. Our bodies and our experiences have amazing intelligence, and we need all of it. We need our head. We need our heart. We need our gut. We need each other. Yeah. And the culture typically holds the head up as the what's value. And we have to create space for the others. And the, the thing that I was struck by in the example that you gave, Annika, is that you owned your experience. You shared, I just feel this clenching in my gut. And when you own your experience, it's unarguable. It's a mm-hmm. way of intervening and showing up in a group where it's not going to create defensiveness on their part, generally, because you're not saying, well, you're wrong. You're saying, well, this is going on for me which then had your colleague check in and he's like, I got the same thing going on for me. And it opens up more space for that. So that's another way to, is to be mindful in the presence of others and then speak to what's going on around your mindfulness or your presence. And that offers a gift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Other, you know, in our last five minutes or so, what else do you want to share with folks in terms of tips or thoughts or insights? Hmm. You know, one of the things that I often teach with mindfulness is, and we often think of mindfulness as a calming, a slowing down. And we do need those practices to soothe ourselves, to calm, to collect ourselves, to bring about more intention. And this is one of my favorite parts is we need the hot practices as Uh well. To get ourselves fired up, inspired, get the life force going, get the juice happening. And so, you know, whatever that is for you, whether it's singing or drumming or running or snowshoeing or dance, 
there's all sorts of things, but to remember that we need both hot and cool practices. And we all probably have a place where we feel more comfortable, like, oh, I am pretty comfortable in calm, cool grounding. I need to remember the hot, inspired, get the spirit moving so that we're still engaging in life and activating the life force. I went on a walk the other day up the butte here, and it was a kind of one of those calm moments. And I got to the top, I could see out at the mountains. But when I came down, I put on hard rock. I put on ACDC, <laughs> back in black, kicked off uh-huh. my shoes in the park and just danced it out. And that combination of calm, cool grounding and settling and the the activation of life force and spirit, I think will be really helpful in this time to not shut down and to stay in life because this is life now. <laughs> yeah, I like We're that. We're not waiting. Yeah, it's, I like to, I think of that as being in the full continuum between stillness and passion. It's like that and being able to travel that range in partnerships. Some of that for me is being playful and my sense of humor. When I when I get into my playfulness in a group, then I, I just somehow access a whole nother part of my liveliness. And it's like, it just taps into a whole nother energy. That's uh, yeah. cool, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah, I saw it on your face since we're <laughs> since we're actually looking at each other once we record this. Like as as I was talking about the hot practices, I saw the life force come up in you too, yeah, the sparkle. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, right. And it's so different. It's like kind of fun to wonder and be curious and and welcome other people's wake up, you know, awakening, enlivening practices or whatever that mm-hmm. is for them because. You know, there's probably not necessarily always room in a corporate environment for those welcomed in just as much as being in silence with each other or stillness or letting each other pause and take a breath before somebody speaks in a meeting. It's like giving room for both of those. It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. What else do you you see as ways that that hot energy shows up in a group, in a corporate team that, that they don't always give space for? In some ways, as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking in some ways both of these can be undervalued in the corporate culture. Stillness, calm and centered can be looked at as, you know, what's wrong with you? And I, I remember I used to have clients that would be in the practice and say, Am I losing my edge? I feel so calm now. Like <laughs> so used to going right. on adrenaline right. that as the calmness comes in, they were still being effective and even more so, but the kind of addiction we have to the adrenaline and go, 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 and the illusion that that we're actually making movement when a lot of times we're just on the hamster string. And and then also passion. You know, sometimes we're not supposed to be passionate and in love and, you know, excited and inspired about our work. Sometimes that can be be judged as well. So, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm working with a community of about 20 leaders in an Oregon coastal town right now around racial health equity. And we've taken the work online. So one of the things we do in these three-hour sessions is we start with a more embodied mindfulness practice. But at a break, we put on the music and we dance. And, you know, so we're attending to both. And, and I think it's important to ask ourselves and ask kind of tune into whatever group we're in is, do we need more play? Do we need more aliveness? Mm -hmm. 
or do we need more calm? And that's something that's important to pay attention to. Yeah, I'm thinking about some of the three and a half day learning labs we do where we'll have just deep conversations about race and other issues and gender. And then we'll just, you know, play the silliest, you know, icebreaker that sort of brings brings a balance to it. And it's like that, that, that sort of yin and yang that allows us to have heaviness and lightness and a balance, as you say. Mm-hmm. I think that's a... Mm-hmm really delicate. And I know a, a colleague of mine used to design group facilitations experiences using music theory. So she would like pay, have pauses. She would think about, you know, climaxes and calms and things like that. It's like, it's a little bit about what, what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Eight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful example. Yeah. So what's like a current edge for you right now in all of this mindfulness field of mindfulness of work, whether it's at the intersection of diversity issues or just life in general or COVID? Well, one of the commitments I made to myself at the beginning of this is a commitment to feel and be present with everything and to go right through the center so that I came out the other side more committed, more clear more empowered, more ability, with more capacity to show up in this work and in life. And so that continues to be an edge to remember to play and be in joy. I've been thinking like, could we do like a dance party in the park, social distancing, yeah, like right. the, remembering to, to <laughs> be in life now, that this isn't about waiting to return to something, how to be really present and and bring myself into life now. Yeah, I think those are some of the edges. And to remember the the gentling practice too. You know, to tell you the truth, I have not experienced a lot of fear. I think so much of my life route has been engaging with uncertainty and going into the unknown. But I can feel sometimes the parts of me that miss contact with other people and miss, you know, being in presence. And so just being gentle with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to go in a couple stores yesterday and the day before I was like, oh, this is so sweet to just walk around <laughs> and, you know, closer contact with people than just a mm-hmm. small, tiny circle. It's like that. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. part of me that's hungry for particular connections with people, but just the general feel of a community. It's like, yeah, that wanting that wanting that back and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing I just wanted to acknowledge and thank you for is you've done some significant work with, I think, women in prisons around mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spent about five years working at Coffee Creek Correctional Facility with women. And it started with a volunteer program that I did called The Miracle of a New Beginning which was a three and a half month mindfulness, expressive arts, a healing group. And then that also led into working with women about three months before they were going to be returning to the community to help them prepare for that on multiple levels. And it was, it was really, I often would tell them, we're no different. Many ways, the traumas are the same, challenges are the same. In some ways, their actions were more true. I was performing over the top of things, but I, I really met 
a level of my own humanity and humanity with those women. And many are still in my life today. Many are joining the anti-racism work. This is however many years later. But it was really powerful work. Partly, you know, one of the things I'm thinking of in this time is, you know, a lot of the women, there was no place for grief. If they would cry on their bunks, often they would be placed on suicide watch or be told to not cry. And they might have a few minutes in the shower. So when they came into the room with me, there was a permission to feel and a permission to begin healing and a permission for the grief. And I think about that again in this time, like where are the spaces? There's, There's no way that we can go through this without connecting with loss and grief. And I'm reminded of the relationship between grief and praise and joy. And if we numb the grief, we numb the joy. And there is going to be a joy and a celebration at some point on the other side of this as we get to come back together, probably in new ways and some in in very same ways. But so that work was, I think, probably had some of the most heart and maybe one of my most proud accomplishments or contributions in my life. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, Thank you for the conversation. I I wondered Mm -hmm. if you wanted to leave folks with one of those one or two minute sort of exercises if they choose to stay listen. I don't know if some of them might be driving and they can't do some one, but anything come to mind? Yeah, I think we talked about coherence earlier in this. And one of the practices, and you can do this practice when you said driving. I'm like, okay, what practice can happen? (laughs) You can do this with Uh eyes opened or eyes closed. I'm going to just drop it in, close my eyes. But this this will bring your body, heart, and brain into potentially deeper coherence. It's a practice used with children that maybe have test anxiety. I know professional athletes use it. It's a it's a practice that comes from the Heart Math Institute called Heart Coherence. So let's just take a moment and tune our attention into ourselves. We may have been listening or talking or doing other things, but just bring the attention and turn it back towards ourselves and become aware of our, our bodies and breathing. And as you're breathing, just be aware of the receiving that happens on the inhale and the letting go that happens on the exhale. And as you bring more awareness to your breathing, you may notice that it it starts to change. Maybe it goes deeper. Maybe it elongates or softens. Just notice the rhythm of your breathing. And we're just settling in a little bit more, dropping into our bodies and our breathing. And here's the practice, three parts, pretty simple. You can put your hand, your left hand over the center of your chest is one way to do the first step called heart focus. Or you can just drop your attention down into the center of your chest. Bringing awareness to our heart, 
to our chest, heart focus. And then the second step is to do heart breathing and breathing in a, in a way that you're breathing through your heart on, in all directions, front to back, top to bottom, almost like you were giving a massage to your heart or circulating more air through the center of your chest and your heart and breathing into the count of four and out to the count of four through the center of your chest. Letting any tightness kind of soften and, re and relax as you breathe. So a heart focus, heart breathing, giving the heart a massage with your breath. And then heart feeling. And just in this moment, becoming aware of something you feel some appreciation for, gratitude. Something that brings maybe a slow smile to your face. It could be a connection you have with a child or friend. It could be the beauty of spring. It could be a cup of tea. And just let that feeling of appreciation, of joy, of gratitude, fill your chest, fill your heart as you breathe. Really focusing on that experience of gratitude and appreciation. And then while we're here, really attuning to ourselves and our heart, let yourself receive a word as intention for the rest of your day. What do you want to create? What do you want to experience? What do you want to offer? Let it kind of be condensed down into one word or a phrase. And let yourself breathe that into every cell in your body. And then dropping your hand your eyes were open, that's fine. If they're closed, opening your eyes and just noticing the quality of your own presence in this moment. Again, you can teach this to your children. You can do it while driving. You can do it in the grocery store if you notice a lot of anxiety. <laughs> just dropping in heart focus, receiving breath through the center of your chest and bringing something that you appreciate in the moment. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It was a great gift to share. And I, I appreciate you recognizing and mentioning gratitude because I was thinking about that earlier. As I think it's another part of uh, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So much of our culture emphasizes being critical, fixing things, focusing on that's what's not working. And it is out of balance with just holding appreciation and gratitude and 
taking the time to feel it. It's like, you know, people focus on feeling emotions of anger sometimes and fear and sadness, but not always realizing how powerful it is to just slow down and feel gratitude and joy too. Mm-hmm. Especially right now, such a, an important resource, like our brains and bodies do well on gratitude and appreciation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Helps us come back home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was your phrase or word for the day, Michael? So mine was to sort of the slowing down and the connecting that we've had on this call with each other here, I think is the intention that came to mind was to bring that same to my daughters who are in the home with me. You know, this mm. uh, just, am I, am I really slow, slowing down and being present with them or saying what's real for me with them? in the opportunity that allows for that being space with us as opposed to just mm-hmm. going on with you know the doing kind of going by them or whatever so being present to them and in my being present to myself when i'm with them and seeing i don't know what's going to happen today but i'm looking forward to that intent so i appreciate that yeah i love that did you have an intent come up for you i i did and it was to be in joy and wonder. And there seems to be a holding of both the the challenge and the difficulty that we're in right now, but also not to be embarrassed by our own joy and wonder and gratitude and aliveness, that that can also be a source of resilience and support and nourishment as well. So I notice I've had a little bit of a lid on that and mm. today. I'm like, I'm taking the lid off and letting myself be in the joy and wonder of life as it is today. Awesome. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. I feel more awake, more inspired, more excited, and really excited to work with you more. Yeah, I have a sense of happiness and well-being. You've contributed to that joy and wonder today. So thank you. Thank you. Well, mutual. I feel that too. And I hope the listeners here got some tidbits and some insights and maybe they're into a part of their being sense that they weren't in the beginning of this call too. So thank you for that. So Annika, it's been a joy and I look forward to connecting again. Thanks for the podcast. Okay, off to joy, wonder, and presence. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.